artist in for almost 10 years now, so that's pretty wild. Um, I love this community um, as it's changed. I continue to love this community and feel loved by it. Um, we've been through a lot um, in that way that family does, and um, so I'm really grateful to be here uh, sharing with you all. Um, and in that series on the deeply formed life, we're kind of in that second part, which is on ra racial reconciliation. Boy, that's a mouthful. In a divided world. Um, probably what you came here on a Sunday morning to talk about, some light uh, chit-chat on a Sunday morning around racial reconciliation. Um, if you're wondering, yes, I am nervous. I hope you are too, because <laughs> that'll make me feel better. Um, also just want to recognize that uh, this room is diverse, and, um, and not just racially, uh, but in many ways. Um, so if your primary or even secondary experiences of life are on the receiving end of inequities, discriminations, and oppressions, I invite you to figuratively stand with me or behind me instead of in front of me, if that makes sense. Uh, in other words, please know that much of what I'm sharing today is not to you, but hopefully for you or on your behalf. Um, and if it at all is not, I welcome you to ignore me or even correct me if you feel comfortable. Um, I also want to acknowledge that I am, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that I'm speaking as one singular person, not as a representative of whole communities and groups of people or any particular group, and um, certainly not speaking to all people, and certainly not speaking to all people in the same way. So I'll let that sit with you as I share. Um, I wonder actually what the next slide is. Ah, <laughs> perfect. Just what I thought. Um, so I'll start out with a wider lens than just uh, racial reconciliation. The conversations around racial reconciliation in particular are set within a larger context around many intersecting injustices and oppressions. Um, so a couple that probably come to mind immediately um, are around gender and race, um, sexuality, all these sorts of different ways. And um, systems of, of injustice and oppression then kind of interlace all of these identities and experiences. And Villadis, um, the, the gentleman who wrote uh, the book, Deeply Formed Life, hopefully you got a, a photo of him, he specifically focuses on, in on racial injustice in particular. And I think it is in fact a hallmark for injustice in terms of how it has really seeped into our structures and societies, and therefore how it has impacted um, racialized people. In a word, white supremacy, oof, that hit hard. White supremacy has a way of affecting everything and everyone, regardless of who you are. And their basic bases are these, one is uh, just the foundation of the existence of difference out there in us, which in and of itself is, of course, beautiful, very good. The second, then, is an injection of a hierarchy of values, so superiority and inferiority in various ways that are based on those differences. And then the third layer, then, is widespread systematization and institutionalization of that hierarchy 
through various forms of discrimination, violence, and ultimately oppression. So obviously we're not trying to get rid of that first point. Differences now, difference is good. It's something that's to be celebrated for all time. But uh, Villadis writes, ding. Oh. Colorblindness is not the MO of heaven. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. God sees all the color, or in other words, God sees all the difference. In fact, all over Revelation, there is this constant reference to this multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. As it turns out, in the New Jerusalem, we don't just all turn into white people speaking English, including Jesus. I distinctly remember growing up with pictures of white Jesus sitting with white biblical children uh, on his lap or holding a, a bright white lamb or um, playing soccer in his bright white robe uh, as, a, as a child in Sunday school. And that's what I uh, grew up with as an image of who Jesus was. But difference exists in the kingdom of God. And there's no hierarchy or superiority of nations. All are ransomed. All stand before the Lamb. All are in God's kingdom and made priests and priestesses. All are made to reign, not one over another, and certainly not to violate or oppress one another. But I think we know that. There's this way in which uh, talking about injustice, inequity, oppression at the level of the systemic is difficult to connect with personally and, and day to day. Um, we can believe that, yes, that's wrong over there, I agree, but still distance ourselves from it. We can disagree with it, but not participate in enacting justice. Uh, to quote queer feminist scholar Sarah Ahmed, boop, that's her, I realized how the presumption of our own criticality can be a way of protecting ourselves from complicity. But complicity can be a starting point. If we start with complicity, we recognize our proximity, our closeness to the problems we are addressing. We make it personal. Join the problem. Don't just presume that you disagree with racism. Act into it. If the kingdom of God is, in fact, for all people, nations, tribes, languages, can we distance ourselves from the systemic oppressions in and around our lives and still be participating in the kingdom of God breaking in here on earth? I don't think so. More and more in my spiritual journey, I wonder if that is not precisely what we are up to here in the work of reconciling ourselves to our own selves, others, creation, the land, and to God. I'd like to take the brunt of our time today together to make this conversation deeply personal. And I'd like to try that by talking about the racial and racist history of our own city, Vancouver. 
the racist history of Vancouver. I put the word history in brackets there uh, because, of course, racism is not simply a historical phenomenon. Rather, what I'd like to highlight by talking about the history of racism in Vancouver is where our current racisms come from. They are not incidental. They are long-standing and inherited. And I think sometimes we can feel as though we're a bit immune to these realities here. We're not in America, we're in Canada. We're not even in the prairies, we're BC. Uh, we're not even the valley, we're Vancouver. Multicultural, diverse, home of the Olympics. But we do have racism here in Vancouver and we always have. In fact, we have racism here in Vancouver because we always have. Uh, we, of course, cannot talk about the history of Vancouver without talking about the peoples who have lived on and cared for this land since time immemorial, long before we started calling it Vancouver, namely the Coast Salish people, specifically the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. Settlers took over this land by a combination of force, confining indigenous peoples to reserves, by sheer volume of immigration and outnumbering and moving in, and the effect of foreign diseases like smallpox, influenza, and measles um, that were brought into this area by colonial settlers. No treaty was ever signed with any of the Coast Salish nations, thus the language around unceded territory when we acknowledge the land. They were never given up. This is in part why we do land acknowledgements. Yes, it is absolutely to respect and honor the peoples who have cared for this land. It is also to name and remind ourselves, uh, like Chelsea was saying before, of the work of reconciliation that still remains. In view of the most recent inaugural National Day for Truth and Reconciliation this past Thursday, September 30th, I think it's also important to recognize the fact that St. Paul's Indian Residential School operated in North Vancouver from 1898 until 1958. Survivors of that school have recounted stories of many forms of abuse very similar to other residential schools across Canada. We are not immune here, turns out. So much more to be said about that. And it pains me to move on, uh, but otherwise I'll have you here for the next two hours. <laughs> um, so some of the earliest, uh, so that's this tiny little 1885 in the corner there. Gosh, I should have made that bigger. Um, some of the earliest non-Western immigrants to Vancouver were Chinese, Japanese, and South Asian in the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, Canada was able to impose a Chinese head tax in 1885 that was $50 um, to restrict quote, and regulate Chinese immigration into Canada. Uh, it was later raised to $100 by Prime Minister Wilfred Laurier at the time because there was still an influx of Chinese immigrants. Um, this was obviously going to happen in that there was a ship line that was highly prized as a kind of trading route between Asia and Canada. And then three years later, that head tax was raised 10 times the original amount of $500, which is what you'll not see there, but I, you can trust me, it says $500, somewhere in that certificate there uh, on the screen. And that was essentially equivalent to about two years' wage for 
a Chinese laborer at that time. Certain companies who were looking for cheap labor, so read unjustly, unequally paid um, labor, would often advance this money to actually bring Chinese immigrants to Canada. Lots of irony there. Um, and then you can just imagine uh, what kind of aggregated and accumulated debt was acquired, not by just the individual who is being unjustly paid, um, who can't then pay off that debt, uh, but also an entire community of people who are sharing the burden of that debt, which was then exacerbated further by restrictions on land ownership and business operations. You can start to see the many factors that have contributed to ongoing poverty in, for example, today's Chinatown. This Immigration Act was eventually superseded by another Chinese um, Immigration Act in 1923. It's also known as the Chinese Exclusion Act, which actually banned Chinese immigration entirely to Canada. 20 years later, in 1943, it was repealed, at which point Canada allowed 105 Chinese immigrants a year. <laughs> it wasn't until the 50s and 60s that at least overtly racially-based immigration policy was banned, so more specifically in 1967. Um, Vancouver's anti-Asian riots. So the anti-Asian riots actually happened in Chinatowns and Asian communities across the coast of North America. Um, and they were largely uh, kind of concentrated in the early 20th century. And that included Vancouver in 1907, um, at least the most violent and long-standing riots. This one lasted uh, three days. Also very much due to that kind of contradiction of we want your cheap labor, but we don't want you. Um, one, one thing to note here is that um, Generally speaking, the, the existence of Chinatowns and Japantowns, Little Italys, uh, these were not started as tourist locations for cultural engagement. They were formed out of survival. Often these communities were discriminated against, again, in land ownership, business operations. They faced ongoing threats of violence. So congregations of racialized communities are most often a product of racism, not celebration. Our Chinatown up the street is uh, certainly a reminder of that. Following year, um, 1908, Canada passes a continuous journey regulation that required that immigrants must arrive in Canada via one single continuous journey from their country of citizenship. What is that about? Glad you asked. So, in that India was part of the British Empire, Canada could not um, keep folks from immigrating from India. And so they created the Continuous Journey Regulation, a loophole. They shut down access to purchase tickets on the single steamship route that sailed directly from India, thereby making it impossible for Indians to immigrate to Canada. And this regulation was also intended to stop Japanese um, from immigrating to Canada by cutting off the Hawaiian stopover route from Japan. And then six years later, in 1914, um, uh, an Indian businessman from Punjab, Gurdit Singh, chartered the Japanese ship Komogata Maru to transport prospective Indian immigrants to Canada and as a form of protest against this immigration law. 
And after almost two months at sea, 376 Indian passengers, uh, predominantly Punjab Sikhs and some Muslims and Hindus, arrived in, um, uh, in the Burrard Inlet uh, right by Coal Harbor. Um, and that was May 23rd, 1914. A lot happened, they were, um, this is a very long story that I will not tell, but do look it up. Uh, they spent four months in the Burrard Inlet. Um, they were um, withheld um, food and water. Um, at some point, the Canadian law enforcement tried to board the ship, and eventually the Canadian military showed up and forcibly removed them. So um, this boat that had sailed two months, been in the Burrard Inlet four months, had to sail back two months, back to India. And when they arrived in India, uh, as if the story was not tragic enough, um, British police and military uh, were waiting for them. Violence broke out, and uh, uh, somewhere around 20 passengers were killed, um, and hundreds more were incarcerated. So actually, if you go down to Coal Harbor, there is a memorial um, site that is there for these folks, just recognizing um, our own history here. Uh, that is Canuck Place um, Children's Hospital. It's in currently, uh, so that would be an old photo, of course, but today it's Canuck Place Children's Hospital, an amazing place that is um, providing pediatric palliative care for children, of course. Very redemptive, given that in 1925, it was the headquarters of a fledgling KKK in Shaughnessy. Um, I say fledgling because on the whole, actually, um, Vancouver residents and officials and the BC government and law enforcement were not proponents of having the KKK have a chapter in Vancouver, not because they were racist, of course. Um, it was because of their reputation for violence, vigilantism, and uh, given the founding clansman of the chapter was American, of all things. Uh, the MLA major at the time said he had carefully studied the KKK and that as a white Protestant Gentile, he was able to be objective in the matter. And he criticized the Klan for putting Catholics and black folks on the same level, but said the organization would have value if they focused on running the Japanese and Chinamen and Hindus out of British Columbia. There's also a story about a young uh, Chinese man who worked as a servant in a household with a white woman nurse who he found dead um, one day. And a very long, complicated story short, um, he was initially found not guilty. And uh, in response, some men in white hoods took it upon themselves to kidnap and assault him. 1942, Japanese internment. Uh, this is very close to home, given the building that we're in, the Japanese language hall. Um, so in, in 42, after Canada declared war on Japan during the Second World War, the Pacific National Exhibition, so the p and &E, at Hastings, Hastings Park was used to temporarily house Japanese Canadians who were being forcibly uprooted from their homes all along the BC coast. The majority of these folks were Canadian citizens born in Canada. Over 8,000 Japanese people, majority Canadian born, were detained in the various exhibition buildings and stables at Hastings Park before they were then sent to internment camps um, in the interior of BC or to work camps across Canada. 
And it's important to recognize that these people, actually, they lost their homes, possessions, and, and businesses. Um, the Canadian government stole and, in many cases, sold their property and possessions. And so this uh, building here that we are currently in right now, as far as I understand, is the only building the government returned to the Japanese community in Vancouver and one of very few um, in Canada as a whole. And so you can imagine trying to recover from that as a community of people, communities of people. Um, Hogan's Alley. Uh, this is hopefully a story that's um, familiar to many of us. So Hogan's Alley used to be um, right up the street. It was the alleyway between uh, Main Street and Jackson, um, heading north and south, and then um, between Union Street and Pryor. And uh, the area around Hogan's Alley was actually really, really diverse. Um, but it was also the first neighborhood in Vancouver with a substantial concentration of black folks, black businesses, and, and then there's a black church that's still standing. Um, I forget which corner it is, but it's a few blocks away. Um, <clears throat> and this racialized area was viewed as being a problematic area that required revitalization and other euphemistic words for running uh, poor people of color out of the city to build an urban freeway. Hogan's Alley, unfortunately, was the first neighborhood to be demolished in the freeway project. Um, the freeway actually did not end up going up um, because the Strathcona community actually protested the building of a freeway into the city. And um, and so the freeway didn't end up going up, but unfortunately, um, Hogan's Alley was already demolished and the Georgia Viaduct had already started being built on top of where Hogan's Alley once was. And so um, the once thriving and growing um, black community in Vancouver um, uh, was essentially disbanded. Um, I could go on. Um, I'm going to hop to some more recent uh, examples. Um, so I'm not sure if folks remember, 2016 in Metro Vancouver uh, was an interesting time for Canadians given the election that was happening south of the border. Um, and during that time, there was a swell of um, anti um, all sorts of folks, uh, essentially race-based um, hate crimes that were happening in, in 2016 and around. And one that I, I particularly remember was this flyer that was starting to pop around in places in Richmond. And for those of you who are listening, it says um, there's a cartoon of um, what appears to be an Asian gentleman. Um, and it says, step aside, whitey, the Chinese are taking over. And then below, so you can now enjoy the quote-unquote privilege of being marginalized in the community your forefathers built, have neighbors who refuse to speak your language and not be able to afford a home. Not what you signed up for, join the alt-right. And then there's blurred out contact information followed by let's save Richmond. Next slide. Um, this photo is a screenshot of a video that a good friend of mine took um, three days after the murder of George Floyd on May 28th um, of last year, 2020. 
If you can't see, it is a photo of a van with swastikas painted on the windows. This car was parked um, on the edge of a park just by Commercial Drive. So that was last year. And then, um, uh, oh, I have included photos of all these folks just because I want you to see um, who you're hearing from, um, to see their bodies. And uh, emergent strategy author Adrian Marie Brown writes, um, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Renisha McBride um, and so many others are dead because in some white imagination they were dangerous. And that imagination is so respected that those who kill based on an imagined racialized fear of black people are rarely held accountable. I often feel I am trapped inside someone else's imagination and I must engage my own imagination in order to break free. COVID, um, also a time when race-based hate crime skyrocketed and actually more than ever in the history of uh, data being collected. So the number of police reported hate crimes in Canada as a whole increased by 37% during the first year of the pandemic. Um, this marks the largest number of police reported hate crimes since 2009 when comparable data has been available. Police reported hate crimes targeting race or ethnicity almost doubled in that year uh, compared with the previous year, accounting for the vast majority of that increase in hate crimes. Um, so Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia reported the largest increases. Much of the rise in police reported hate crimes targeting race or ethnicity was towards the black population, the East, Southeast, and South Asian population, and of course the indigenous population. In 2020, police reported the highest number of hate crimes targeting each of these population groups again since comparable data became available. And so this here is actually a study that was not even done in Canada, it was done in California. Um, reports of anti-Asian hate crimes in major North American cities in 2020, and there's Vancouver right at the top. Whew. Maybe you all can take a little breath together. If you feel overwhelmed, you're in the right place, you're in the right company. This was not, there's not a pop quiz after this. I'm not going to ask you to remember all of these details. I just want to allow you to let it uh, roll over you. Um, this is where we live. This is the reconciliation story that we can be a part of, that we need to be a part of. I'm gonna end on this, um, these two kind of lines here. One's called the golden rule, one's called the platinum rule. And the golden rule, um, obviously it's not from the Bible. This is not a quote of the Bible, so I won't say that it is. And it's kind of this idea of treat others how you want to be treated. The platinum rule says treat others how they want to be treated. And that has really, really helped me understand um, what we have read in scripture about loving our neighbor as ourselves. 
And how I would kind of restate that is um, to love um, your neighbor as if they were yourself, and then to go even further than that and really uh, discriminate what it means to actually and, and kind of dive into what it means to love ourselves. I think for a lot of us, we can resonate with reality, which is that we are our own <laughs> biggest critic. We are uh, the hardest on ourselves, and that's not what we're talking about here. When I think about love, I think about knowing. Um, it's not that you can't show love or care for somebody that is a stranger, a complete stranger. I want to believe that love grows with knowing. That we learn to love ourselves as we come to know who we are, as God sees us. And so to love our neighbor as we would come to know ourselves is to love our neighbors in that kind of deep, deep knowing kind of a way and to view them through God's eyes. So it's kind of this pulling apart of two categories of like this level and depth and, and greatness of love for um, how well we can come to know ourselves with the, the deep and wideness and infiniteness of the love of God. And that means that we have to get to know folks who are not like us. And we have to um, recognize the systems that are at play in order for us to get to know certain folks that are affected most by those systems. We have to invite that bigger picture in and let it um, actually infiltrate our understanding of other people who have been uh, historically marginalized and continue to be um, underserved and marginalized in today's society as well. What I want to say at the end in closing is um, that this is uh, not a conversation that's ever going to resolve. And so if you feel uncomfortable, that's great. The journey that we're on is to grow and grow and grow this level of comfort with discomfort, to become familiar with that discomfort as our everyday, and to feel it as family, almost. To not let the inertia of everyday that says, oh, don't worry, it's over there, and you disagree, so you're okay. To not let that actually be our reality, but to actually constantly, intentionally, decisively lean towards reconciliation and the discomfort that comes with dealing with our own complicity, dealing with uh, the ways in which it has affected another person, and to ultimately face uh, the reality that um, we have a part to play. And that can feel extremely uncomfortable, and that is the discomfort that uh, we are invited into as part of that tension of the kingdom of God breaking in. That's what you're feeling. That's the tension that you're feeling. And we want that kingdom to break in for all people. So I invite us into great tension, great discomfort.